Well, the last time we were here, it was actually during the month of August. And we focus on this idea of the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And during that time, if you can recall, we drew out three reasons why believers should have confidence in the testimony that John the Apostle and all of the Apostles have borne concerning Jesus. And of course, you can feel free to review that, it's online. But for today's session, we're moving on to the concluding paragraphs of the epistle, beginning in verse 13. John begins these concluding remarks by stating the purpose of the book. His aim is that believers are assured that they have eternal life. But having stated that, he then moves on, having stated that he wants believers to know that they have eternal life, he moves on to tell believers about how this assurance is actually connected to prayer. And that will be our focus next week. We'll get to that more building next week. But today, we're going to hunker down in verse 13 alone. So before we, we actually begin to unpack this, it may be helpful to kind of rehash some of the context of this short letter. The words we read are written against a backdrop of actual significant turmoil or disruption in the life of the church. Contrary to somewhat our romanticized view of the first century church, there are actually a lot of problems in the first century church. And John is actually writing in the context of one of those big problems. At that time, at the time of the original writing, it is likely that a significant number of members of this community of believers began to embrace false doctrine. Ironically, the message that they preached was not one of paganism. It wasn't that they were trying to seduce people to worship the Baals or the Asherah or anything like that. They were actually preaching and teaching of a type of Jesus. They taught and believed that they were led by the Spirit. They taught and believed that they had the message that came from the Spirit of God. And so these, these false teachers weren't what you would typically find are are people who are directly pointing you to Satan or something like that. They actually had a message that brought forward something that seemed like if it was Christianity. But as we read in this letter though, the Jesus they believed in was not the Christ of the scripture. Their message did not originate from the Spirit of God and their practice was not in conformity to the apostolic teaching. But the problem at that early stage in the life of the church is that there wasn't an apostle around the corner that you could just knock at his door and say, oh, is this guy really from God? Did Jesus really teach him? That wasn't the situation that was going on. In fact, many of the believers at this time didn't even have, or likely didn't even have, an Old Testament in their houses. So it wasn't our situation where we have the entire canon of scripture that we can just go chapter and verse, okay, Jesus is God, like I can point to John 1, 1, I can go to Hebrews, like that wasn't the situation that was transpiring at this point. And so the problem that faced them 
was really whether they had received the true message concerning Jesus or not. Had they followed plausible myths or were they in fact recipients of the true message concerning God? Had they misunderstood the message of Christianity or did they rightly receive it? And based on these things, I'm sure you can imagine those were pretty massive questions to be wrestling with. They get to the core of the Christian message. And so perhaps these believers struggled with the question that many struggle with today. Have I indeed received eternal life? Have I truly come to know the Lord and to become a partaker in the covenant of grace? That was what was at stake. And that's the backdrop that the verse here, verse 13, is written within. There was a lot of confusion. There was perhaps a lot of uncertainty going on at the time. Now John writes with the aim of assuring believers that they indeed do possess eternal life. That's his aim. That's his point. And so as we look at this more closely, I just want to draw a few things from verse 13 that relate to this idea of assurance of salvation. We won't look at everything concerning assurance of salvation. There are a lot of ideas surrounding that topic. Uh, you can look at how the sacraments relate to assurance, the role of the Spirit in assurance, etc. You could go on and on, but our thoughts will be confined to the book of 1 John. But though we, we won't be looking at all of these things, certainly what John teaches concerning assurance is necessary for us to understand something about it. And so, what we will first look at is what exactly is assurance? That's what we'll first look at. I said it a number of times, what exactly do I mean? When I say assurance. After that, we will look at how exactly do we receive or grow in assurance. And then lastly, we'll ask the question, why is assurance relevant for me today? So those are where we're heading. That's like a mental roadmap for us. So let's begin by what is, what is assurance? In the context of verse 13, assurance can be described as knowing that you have eternal life or to borrow the language of the confession it refers to the certainty that you are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of glory of god and never be made ashamed so that's what i mean by assurance it's the certainty that you have received salvation and that's what john is trying to cultivate in the lives of believers but i don't want you to miss this point though brothers and sisters the simple implication of this text is that assurance can be known, it can be had, it can be received today. Christianity isn't merely a religion that looks back at what Jesus has done or what happened in the Old Testament. Christianity isn't merely a religion that looks to the future about what will happen, what God will do at the end of times. But God has promised blessings for us to be received today, and assurance is one of them. Many people approach their final hours dreadfully awaiting death, not knowing, not understanding what will happen to them at the great beyond. People long in their final moments to understand what will become of me. But far from just thinking about your final hours in death, like even when people are alive and doing well, these thoughts fill their head, like, am I really a Christian? Have I come to truly know the Lord? These are questions that arise and worry us and burden us at times. 
And of course, there's false religion that can placate anyone. You can invent any religion to believe that you know you're in God's favor or whatever. But hope of those things will end and is ultimately empty. You dare say, God has not only given a foundation for life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but he has added the blessing that you may actually know that you have eternal life. We don't have the faith of the Muslims where we have to wait until we get before Allah and try to figure out whether we tip the scale in the right direction. That's not what Christianity is. In Christianity, we can actually be assured here, today, and now that we have come to become partakers in salvation. But it's one thing, of course, to say that, you know, assurance exists. It's another thing to actually know that you are a recipient of it. So it's one matter to say that, well, that idea is derived in scripture. It's another matter to say, well, I, I am someone who's received assurance. I am assured of my salvation. So how do you receive or grow in assurance? That's our second point. And we'll spend some time looking at that now. If you look at verse 13, you would notice that John has said that he writes these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So what are the things written about that allow us to know that we have eternal life? Some commentators say that these things relate to the paragraph preceding verse 9 and 12 where John unpacks this idea about the testimony of God born concerning Christ. But I think that view might be a bit too restrictive because this letter being read to the churches, it seems quite obvious reading through it in its entirety that everything that John has written was meant to communicate and cultivate assurance in the lives of the believers there and not just that limited paragraph that precedes verse 13. So I, I take Colin Cruz's view and many other commentators that the entire book is what John has of you when he says these things. So, with that in mind, what is the primary content of John's message? Well, the teaching of this letter primarily outlines for us key aspects of orthodoxy and orthopraxy which accompany genuine faith. By orthodoxy, I mean right faith or right doctrine. And by orthopraxy, I mean right practice. So that, that is what I mean when I say orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So what John does for believers to assure them that they're in fact in a state of grace is by pointing them to the evidences of salvation in their own lives. We are to look for these markers that John outlines for us in the book of 1 John and use them to, to basically allow us to grow in assurance. That is the point of this book. And we'll go through the entire book. It will be a crude summary of the book. But before we do, I think it's important to just highlight the fact that John's goal in writing this book is not evangelistic. John isn't trying to teach his audience or teach an audience that doesn't already know and believes the gospel. As we read here, he says he writes to those who believe in the Son of God. So it's not as though he's writing to a pagan nation or to a bunch of unbelievers or people he thinks are not believers. That's not the case. John is writing to those who believe in, in 
God's word. So when we read the book, we are to go away thinking that John is writing, trying to communicate the means by which you are saved. That isn't the purpose of the book. Confusing the two of those can actually bring up big problems. And it's like confusing the use of a thermometer and the use of Advil. Those are two completely different tools, two completely different things that have two completely different uses. A thermometer tells you that you have a high temperature. It diagnoses one of the key vital signs of life. It tells you if something is wrong or if something is okay. Of course, if you're too cold, you might be dead. Of course, if you're too hot, you might be close to dead. But the point, the point I'm making is just seeing a thermometer reading doesn't prescribe for you the necessary treatment for the malady that is affecting you. So of course you would think it's silly to ingest a thermometer in order to help you with a fever. You would think that's silly, that's obvious. The Advil is better suited for that. The thermometer merely tells you that something is wrong. It serves as a gauge and not as a guide. But in the same way, we shouldn't misread the letter here and misapply it. When John gives us these diagnostic tests or these evidences of salvation, these characteristics, these markers of what true Christianity looks like, he is not trying to show us how sin is cured, how you should go about attaining salvation, how do you get salvation, that's not John's goal. Of course, in the book of 1 John, there's a reiteration of the gospel in several cases. But many times when John is doing that, it's in a polemic form. He's reiterating the gospel to tell you that this is the Christ that you should believe in in order to be saved. That this God who became man is indeed the person who can grant you life. That's most of the times his point. And he's trying to drive his audience to recognize You've indeed received and believed in the true Christ over and against the people who are teaching false doctrine. So, John's primary aim, again just to restate, is to reassure the believers of this local assembly that they fit the markers of true Christianity. So I give that long explanation because as we look at these markers of Christianity, as we kind of do a very condensed version of the book of 1 John, you may say, or someone may mistakenly think, well, that's how you become a Christian. Oh, well, avoiding sin, that's, how I, that's what I need to do to become a Christian. No, that, that would be the completely wrong idea that John is trying to communicate. That would be to confuse the thermometer for the apple. So with that said, by way of quick review, what does John mean when he says, these things I have written, so that you can have assurance, or so that you can know that you have eternal life. In chapter 1, we looked at a person's attitude towards sin as a key test of spiritual vitality. You want to know whether someone is a Christian or not? Check to see whether they're hiding their sin or confessing it. Check to see whether they simply want to live in unchecked rebellion or their posture is to beat their chest before God and say, Oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. 
Those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb recognize that they are sinners and need to come to the throne of grace daily to receive forgiveness. And so one of the clearest demonstrations that we are actually born again is that we're sensitive to sin and know that we don't need to rationalize away our sin or excuse our sin, but we can come to God being assured that He is the one who's able to deal with our sin. Friends, as you well know, sin is not a deal breaker for God at all. Like, that's actually the condition for salvation. If you think about it, the only thing that you need in order to receive salvation is to recognize your need of it, to recognize that you are a sinner, to recognize that you need someone to deal with your sin. So if your relationship with sin has not radically changed, such that you want to expose it for the wickedness that it is, then in the words of John, you walk in darkness and do not practice the truth. But if you can look at this mark of grace in your life and see that you want to eschew sin, you want to get it away from you like fire caught up in your clothes and you want to get it as far away from you as possible, then you can see that that's a distinct mark of grace that's operative in your life. And you can use that to bolster your assurance. So that's chapter 1. And again, we're going through the book of 1 John completely high level. Please forgive me if I miss out your favorite chapter or your favorite portion or verse or whatever. But these are, this is like a crude summary. Again, we spent 19 sermons going through this. So uh, to hope to do it in the short space of time is difficult. But that's chapter 1. Our attitude towards sin is part of the these things that John is speaking about. But more than just speaking about our attitude towards sin, John draws out the fact for us in chapters 2 and 3 that we need to be positively obeying God's commands if we are to have any confidence that God has indeed saved us. In chapters 2 and 3, we see that those who have authentic faith obey the Lord's commands and particularly do so through their love for God and love for God's children. If you've ever read through this epistle, you, you may have noticed that loving Christians is so important to John that he devotes the vast majority of his teaching to loving other Christians, love of the brethren. Contrary to the superficiality of many worldly relationships, only those who turn the lives that Jesus has purchased only those who turn their lives, which Jesus has purchased, toward service of their brothers can have any confidence that they actually are saved, that God has actually worked in them salvifically. Only those who love the brethren can be assured that God has actually given them eternal life. The point is, we can't be assured of our salvation unless we can attest that radical transformation has caused us to direct our lives towards the service of others and more, and more pointedly towards the service of other Christians. Now this might appear to some as being a high standard radical transformation. What about those who are immature or new in the faith? Or what about carnal Christians? What about those? Doesn't a statement like that create greater uncertainty or skepticism or suspicion about your standing before God? 
Well, notwithstanding the, the fact that I think that the term carnal Christian is a misnomer and really shouldn't be used, but notwithstanding that, we have to uphold the truthfulness of the scripture. When we read in the scripture in Corinthians that everyone who is in Christ is a new creature, everyone who is in Christ partakes of the very spirit of God, he's a partaker of the divine nature, we have to to reckon with that and realize that Christianity isn't merely a, a slight tweak in how you were living your life before. It's not that you read something and decided to, you know, just make a few minor adjustments to your life. When the Spirit of God remakes a person, when someone participates in the new birth, they are a different creature. They have affections that were once completely towards the world, now turn towards God. And yes, certainly there's sin. Yes, certainly there are even seasons of darkness and times when you walk in a particular pattern of ungodliness. Yes, that is true. But the point is, the message of John tells us that those who are born again do not practice sin. They do not continue in a life of ungodliness indefinitely. And if you say that a Christian has to continue in a life of ungodliness indefinitely, then I think we have underestimated and undermined the work of Jesus, who we read in the book of 1 John, his primary work is to destroy the works of the devil. His primary work is to make us a holy people. His primary work is to redeem a people who are zealous for good works. That is God's primary focus, to make a people holy for himself. So if we think as, that Christians should not lead radically different lives after conversion, we have misunderstood the essence of the Christian faith and have set it up to be like any other world, any other religion of the world, where you just have to make minor tweaks to your life in order to label yourself or be confident that you're a Christian. So when we read in verse 13 that John has written these things, it includes our attitude towards sin, practicing righteousness, and in particular love for the saints and love for God. But the things we have mentioned just now relate to our right practice or orthopraxy as we mentioned before. But John also focuses on orthodoxy as well. In chapters 4 and 5, and, in, and literally throughout the book of 1 John, actually, but primarily in chapters 4 and 5, the main focus is believing the message that was originally taught by the apostles. Due to the prevailing false teaching of the time, much of the time John spends in the book of 1 John is arguing about Jesus' true humanity. He says things like, if somebody doesn't believe that Jesus has come in the flesh, he is not of God. Things like that he reiterates over and over in different ways. But the point is, the general point I want to draw for you is, you have to believe in the right Jesus. You can't believe in Jose down the street and think that you have salvation. You have to believe in the right Christ. Your, your understanding, your trust, your confidence has to be directed towards the Christ of Scripture. That's, that's the general point I want to make, because it's only those who actually trust in the Christ of Scripture 
that can have confidence that they are vitally united to that Christ. John warns that if you do not believe that Jesus has come in the flesh, you are not from God. True faith and false faith is delineated by not only what you are willing to confess concerning Jesus, but John goes so far as to say in chapter 4, those who you are willing to listen to and embrace tell you something about your standing before God. Someone who's willing to invite and listen to and accept and live out the teaching of a, a false teacher, like say Joel Osteen or something, that person should not have confidence that they actually are in good standing with God. That person should not have confidence that they're partakers in eternal life. The teaching that is contrary to the scripture, if you spend your life just listening to it and embracing it, it's no different than actually confessing the wrong thing. You actually believe in your heart something that's contrary to what God has outlined in the very word of God. This is important because assurance ultimately rests on having confidence in Christ's saving promises. Many times when we struggle in our minds to know whether the Lord accepts us or not, it's because we think that we are not holy enough. But that's exactly why Christ came, because we are not holy enough. We need larger views of Christ, clearer views of Christ, fuller views of Christ, a closer walk with Christ, and not to have something new about Christ told to us, unless, of course, you haven't read it in the Bible or something. Not to have something new of Christ told to us, but to see what is in the Scripture and have that loom large in our lives. Assurance depends on your understanding, your trust, your confidence, your fidelity to God's word, and particularly God's word concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done. So you may have noticed, though, that some of the things which I mentioned are, are objective and measurable. Someone can look at your life day by day and see how you're actually practicing these things. You can look at your life day by day and see how you're actually practicing these things. Whether it is someone who loves the world or someone who loves the Father, it is possible to see the actual degree to which our lives are in conformity to the, the words of this letter. To the extent that these are present in your life, to the extent that you are growing in increasing measure in them, the pathway to being assured of salvation is easier. You can be assured more easily. You can be confident that you've actually received eternal life. As Joel Beakey once noted, you can't have high levels of assurance and low levels of obedience. Those things typically don't go hand in hand. It's not a seesaw relationship. Both of them tend to work in parallel and in concert. Our assurance, though, resting squarely on the merits of Christ's atoning sacrifice on our behalf is bolstered by evidences that his grace has actually reached us by the fruit of our lives we can actually see what kind of tree we are by examining how we live before god how we live before brothers and sisters how we live in those quiet moments of our lives as i mentioned 
the book of First John doesn't tell us in its entirety about assurance, but it does provide us with things that are necessary for our assurance. But that's what the text means when John says, these things I have written. These things. He's summing up the entire book, and I give a very crude summary of the entire book when I mention our attitude towards sin, our practice of righteousness, love of the brethren, our orthodox beliefs. But let's move on to our final point and ask a more personal question. Why should you be concerned about assurance? Well, to begin with, I want to draw your attention to a specific statistic. Not because in and of itself, it demonstrates what is operative in one particular church or in one particular group, but I think it's a dynamic that we need to be aware of, particularly as those living in Barbados. We live in a very Christianized society. Based on our most recent census in 2010, the 2021 census is still ongoing, I believe. Three out of every four persons in Barbados consider themselves to be a Christian. Three out of every four persons consider themselves to be a Christian. They didn't tick other, they didn't tick unsure, they ticked, I consider myself to be a Christian. Though the survey is dated, we can imagine that that number probably hasn't changed very drastically. And even if it has, it still serves the point that at one time, three out of four persons in Barbados believe they were walking with the Lord. But given our social and cultural fabric, though, it isn't difficult to imagine that that figure doesn't quite represent reality. What I mean to say is that many are in fact convinced they're walking with the Lord as one of his children, but are in fact probably cultural Christians or just nominal Christians. And just to be clear, I am equating nominal Christianity to not being a Christian at all. I'm not saying that nominal Christianity is some form of immature Christianity. I'm saying it's not Christianity at all. In many instances, cultural Christians have grown up among church members and now infrequently participate in its services or perhaps never attended a church service but have their own relationship with God. Whatever the case, teaching that we have here in the book of 1 John really helps us to reckon with the reality that we live in. There is such a thing as false assurance. There is such a thing as being self-deceived. These are categories that we have to reckon with. There's such a thing as being sincere, but being sincerely wrong. Of course, we aren't trying to bar people from the kingdom of God when, when I speak like this. I'm not trying to say, well, you stay out there, you're not like this, and don't come in here. Quite the opposite. We want people to know that they have truly received the things that God has blessed them with and in this case, eternal life, and not be falsely convinced that they are recipients of the eternal life. We want that persons are aware of their standing so that they can actually cry out to God for the salvation which they don't have and which they thought they did have. That's what we want. And so 
When we have a biblical framework or lens which informs us about things like this, in evangelism, we should be careful when someone says, yes, I'm a Christian, I've heard all that already. We should be careful to go a step further because in Barbados, three out of four times, according to the survey, you're going to hear, yeah, I'm a Christian already. But you should go a bit further and say, well, why do you say so? Or, you know, ask about their Christian life or something like that. So that we get to the point where we can move people to recognize, well, maybe I'm not walking with the Lord. Maybe I'm... Maybe I shouldn't be convinced that I'm a Christian. Maybe I shouldn't use this label Christian so lightly. But what I've said just now relates to how we interact and engage with the world. But I want you also to know, brethren, that it's actually the duty of every Christian to attain assurance. If you read, if you've ever read the book of Second Peter and the first chapter. Peter urges believers to make their calling and election sure. He actually uses the words make every effort or use diligence to make your calling and election sure. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said it this way. If any man is not sure that he is in Christ, he ought not to be easy one moment until he is sure. Dear friend, without the fullest confidence as to your saved condition, you have no right to be at ease. And I pray you may never be so. This is a matter too important to be left undecided. Friends, ignoring assurance is like ignoring the check engine light when it comes on in your car. There are plenty of rattles and noises that I've heard growing up in a, a not so well off family with a car that doesn't work so well. There are plenty of rattles and noises I hear, and it's just like, oh, whatever. That, you know, I'll get where I'm going. But check engine light usually means that your car isn't headed to a good place if it is left unattended. If we are careful with material possessions, brethren, something that will eventually end up in St. Thomas's metal dump as scrap one day, how much more earnest and diligent should we be concerning matters of our soul? As Spurgeon said, we ought not to be at ease. If it bothers you more that something is wrong with your car engine, and it bothers you about where you will spend the rest of eternity, or what the state is of your soul, then you have completely misprioritized ultimate matters of weight and moment in your life. We can't neglect to take stock of our souls. It is a Christian duty. And the book of 1 John serves as a reminder which reassures us if we are already confident that we do have salvation or confronts and challenges us that we really need to consider whether we have received eternal life. But in addition to yourself, we should be mindful about how we support or discourage assurance in the lives of other believers. While each believer has a duty to be assured themselves, assurance is a personal thing. In the body of Christ, we have a responsibility to, to encourage those who are feeling discouraged with the same words of the scripture. Sometimes we are experiencing a difficult time and can't really think straight. 
we need as uh, what Pastor John has mentioned, some gaihas therapy, give our head a shake, some, some of that therapy. Sometimes we're clouded and we feel discouraged and we need a brother or sister to come alongside us and show us like, no, I've seen you minister to the needs of the saints. Look at what First John says about, you know, providing for those who are in need. Look at what First John says about loving your brothers. Look at how he says you are to be practicing righteousness. I've seen you walk faithfully before the Lord all of these years. Sometimes we need a brother or sister to come alongside us and tell us these things, to help us to see clearly the very things that are written in the book of 1 John. That's one of the ways that we love our brothers. That's one of the ways we help each other along, particularly when we have seasons of doubt and seasons of distrust and mistrust, to comfort and to help bring up each other through the word. Shouldn't only rely on trite phrases like let go and let God, and I have no problem with that phrase in and of itself. But I'm saying that the scripture pro provides its own medicine for the soul. And so we should be able and competent to use it in situations where a brother or sister is feeling down and discouraged. But on the flip side though, it's also true, right? We shouldn't support professing Christians who think they're assured of their salvation when they shouldn't be. We shouldn't support those who confidently go around saying that they are Christians, just like in the book of 1 John here. We shouldn't go around helping them to become even more secure when, say, they believe in the wrong Christ. They misunderstand who Jesus is and what his work is on this earth, or they misunderstand how they should be living in this, in this life. We shouldn't help those people to become assured because both things are true. We should help the discouraged when they need some head shaking and need to recognize that, yes, they should have confidence in Christ. But we need to be careful and not go around as yes men or Mr. Encouragement thinking that we ought to bring encouragement to bear in situations where we need to be really strongly bringing a stern word to a brother and saying, you really need to be concerned about how you're living. We need to do that for our brothers and sisters in the same way that we would do that for someone who comes to us, you know, and comes into our lives and we witness to them in the world. We need to be mindful about that. We have a duty and responsibility not only to our own souls then, but in the lives of others. The Apostle John implicitly gives us this example by writing this letter to the church. He does both in the letter. He tries to show the, pe the people who are preaching false doctrine, you're not really Christians. And he tries to assure the people who have believed the message and are walking righteously that they are Christians. So we need to be doing both. Our assurance doesn't rest simply on the strength of our convictions that Jesus has come and bled and died and rose for our sins. But as the words of John says, we can take it to the bank that when our doctrine and practice lines up with the teaching of Scripture, 
we can have confidence that we are saved. I trust that the Spirit will indeed work in our midst that we may, in the words of the author of Hebrews, have full assurance of the faith. If there are any unbelievers here or watching online, this sermon was primarily directed to believers, as you need to be a believer in the first place to have assurance. But assurance can be yours too if you come to Christ through faith. Don't wait to think that you need to be holy enough or meet some criteria before you come to the throne of grace. While obedience serves as an aid to our assurance, it is not the basis of our saving relationship with the Lord. Waiting to focus your gaze on Christ's promises because you're not holy enough is like a man waiting to eat until he becomes strong enough or waiting to sleep until you become energized enough, in the words of John Owen. The bread of life is offered to you so that you can become strong. So come to Christ in the first place. Come to Christ and receive forgiveness of sins. Come to Christ and receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Come to Christ, receive the blessing of redemption and adoption. Trust in his sin atoning death on your behalf that he is willing to clothe you in righteousness, and you will be saved. And may the Lord grant us, as well as those who are coming to faith, this assurance that we read in the scripture.